Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 105. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on February 13th, 2023, in my bedroom closet in New Orleans. On the small chance that you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. I must confess that I've been a bit on the struggle bus thinking through how best to tackle the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay. I've wrestled with talking about their first decade thematically instead of chronologically, which is the usual approach of the podcast. One of the reasons is that a lot of the historical writing of the period's thematic, looking at such things as theology, economic development, governmental development, and so forth, rather than marching it through year by year. But that works better for books than for a podcast. I've settled instead on sort of a flexible chronological approach with lots of backing and filling as we move through that first decade. We shall see together how well that works out. The last chronological episode was number 103, The Winthrop Fleet and the City on the Hill. The Arbella, flagship of the fleet, had arrived in Salem on June 12, 1630. The other ships would straggle in over the next few weeks. Winthrop found that Salem was in no condition to support the 700 or so new colonists. Eighty of the advance group had died the previous winter, and food was scarce, even with the supplies loaded on the ships. The situation was so dire that the surviving indentured servants were released from their obligation to work because they could not be fed. They would have to fend for themselves. We concluded that episode with a quick overview of the dispersion of the new settlers around Boston. This time, we are going to look more closely at the first year and a half or two years after the Winthrop Fleet's arrival. Now, in the mid-1700s, Massachusetts had a royal governor named Thomas Hutchinson, about whom we will have more to say when we get there, you know, if I live that long and stuff. Anyway, Hutchinson was a scholar of sorts and wrote the first comprehensive history of Massachusetts in those early years. The history of Massachusetts from the first settlement thereof in 1628 until the year 1750. No doubt there are all sorts of things in Hutchinson's book that subsequent historians have disproved or object to on one ground or another, but it's useful for its 18th century take on the 17th century and because it tackles the history of the Bay Colony chronologically. And anyway, one can see Hutchinson's work in the background of many of the modern thematic histories. So I'll give you the flavor of it by reading his rendition of that first landing at Salem. Quote, The common people immediately went ashore and regaled themselves with strawberries, which are very fine in America and which were then in perfection. This might give them a favorable idea of the produce of the country, but the gentlemen met with enough to fill them with concern. The first news they had was a, of a general conspiracy a few months before of all the Indians as far as Narragansett to extirpate the English. Eighty persons of about 300 
had died in the colony the winter before, and many of those that remained were in a weak, sickly condition. There was not corn enough to have lasted above a fortnight, and all other provisions were very scant. They were obliged to give all the servants they had sent over their liberty, that they might fend for themselves, although they had cost from 16 to 20 pounds a head. They had not above three or four months to look out proper places for settlements and to provide shelter against the severity of the winter. With this prospect of difficulties great enough for them to encounter, sickness began among them. Being destitute of necessary accommodations, they dropped away one after another. Among others, the Lady Arabella, who, to use Mr. Hubbard's words, came from a paradise of plenty and pleasure in the family of a noble early into the wilderness of wants. And although celebrated for her many virtues, yet was not able to encounter the adversity she was surrounded with. And in about a month after her arrival, she ended her days at Salem, where she first landed. Mr. Johnson, her husband, highly esteemed for his piety and wisdom, overcome with grief, survived her a short time only and died in Boston the 30th of September to the great loss of the colony. Mr. Rossiter, another of the assistants, died soon after. Before December, they had lost 200 of their number, including a few who died upon their passage. Back to me. Edmund Morgan, perhaps the greatest American historian of the period, suggests that much of their food was lost in transit, writing that the most skillfully packed hogsheads of meal were not proof against the North Atlantic. Scurvy was a constant risk, and dried and salted protein did not supply enough vitamin C to ward it off. Fresh meat, which does have some vitamin C, might have kept it at bay, but wolves might have killed the few cows they brought with them. And in any case, they would have kept the cows alive for milk and procreation. They could have shot deer, difficult as that might be with matchlocks, but they didn't have hunters along. The Puritans were merchants and farmers from a country where hunting was generally illegal, so they lacked skills. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall how unusual Thomas Morton, the Lord of Misrule, had been in his skill as a hunter. Salem itself was dispiriting. The old settlers lived in caves or had built wigwams in the Indian style, but not nearly as competently. In Morgan's words, inside they built fires and huddled like savages in the smoke that curled up through a hole at the top. They were as weak as the newcomers they greeted. After the first joy of the strawberries, the newcomers became dispirited and began to talk of going home. Some of that may have been the early onset of their own scurvy, which is marked by depression and a lackadaisical state of mind. Winthrop looked upon all of this as a morale problem and knew he had to move fast. On June 17th, less than a week after disembarking and before even all the ships had arrived, Winthrop and a few of the others set out to explore the region. Now to Morgan's description, quote, he cruised for several miles up the Mystic River and took note of the meadows. Englishmen called them 
champion land with their fat black earth. Coming back, he stopped and spent the night at the fine house which Samuel Maverick had built at the mouth of the river on the north side. That would be roughly the site of Logan Airport today, all encompassed by a palisade. Here was sufficient proof of what a little effort and courage would do. Maverick, a well-bred young man, had come over with his bride six years before, had built this house and fortified it, and now he lived like a king, offering hospitality to all who came. He seemed to have passed his six years in the wilderness as comfortably and civilly as if he had been in London. If one man could do so well in his own cause, how much more could a thousand do in the cause of God? Back to me. Maverick was an interesting fellow, not always in a good way, who would crop up repeatedly, so permit me a brief digression. In 1638, just a few years hence, Maverick was the first to introduce black slaves to New England. An English visitor named John Jocelyn observed their suffering firsthand and tried to intervene, at least according to his own account, written in 1674. Quote, the 2nd of October, about nine of the clock in the morning, Mr. Maverick's Negro woman came to my chamber window and in her own country language and tune sang very loud and shrill. Going out to her, she used a great deal of respect toward me and willingly would have expressed her grief in English, but I apprehended it by her countenance and deportment, whereupon I repaired to my host to learn of him the cause and resolved to entreat him on her behalf, for that I had understood before that she had been a queen in her own country, and observed a very humble and dutiful garb used toward her by another negro, who was her maid. Mr. Maverick was desirous to have a breed of negroes, and therefore, seeing she would not yield by persuasion to company with a negro young man he had in his house, he commanded him to go to bed to her, which was no sooner done but she kicked him out again. This she took in high disdain beyond her slavery, and this was the cause of her grief. Back to me. Rape and slavery go hand in hand, and also the standards for being a well-bred young man have changed in the last 400 years. David Hackett Fisher, in his just-published book, African Founders, had this to say about the Mavericks, quote, The Puritans judged Samuel Maverick to be an enemy of the Reformation at hand and encouraged him to depart. Several of his descendants moved south and west and found a home in Texas. There another Samuel Maverick, 1803 to 1870, became infamous for grazing his cattle on the open range and refusing to brand them according to the custom. Unmarked cattle began to be called mavericks. The family name became a synonym for Americans who went their own way in defiance of custom law and right conduct. For some Americans, it became a praise word. Back to me. Fortunately for Mark Cuban's basketball team, we Americans don't believe in corruption of blood. 
Anyway, I'm sure that the Mavericks, the family, not the NBA team, will come up again in the history of the Americans. Winthrop continued his exploration of the region. He kept finding other English, including a group on Nantasket who had been abandoned by their captain. He quickly realized that the region around Boston, in a protected bay with a deep channel and at the confluence of two rivers, would be both more fertile and productive and more defensible than Salem. On his return, he ordered everybody back on board and sailed for Charlestown, where Winthrop would make his own house. There were already as many as 200 English there, from the very first early Puritan voyages of 1628 and 1629. Also on his return, Winthrop got some terrible news. Winthrop's son Henry, something of a black sheep with a proclivity for defying convention and asking his father for financial help, had arrived on one of the later ships, the Talbot, on July 1st, while Winthrop was off exploring the Massachusetts Bay. Henry was the only member of Winthrop's family to sail for New England in 1630, and he'd been assigned to the flagship Arbella along with his father. But he had missed the boarding time because he was helping to corral cattle onto the hold of one of the other ships. So he sailed on Talbot. On the very next day, July 2nd, Henry and some mates were exploring along one of the rivers and spotted a canoe on the opposite shore. Henry was the only swimmer in the group, so he dived in and swam in the direction of the canoe, intent on, presumably, stealing it. Unfortunately for Henry Winthrop, he seized up with cramps. Maybe he didn't wait for an hour after eating. And since none of his friends could swim to his rescue, he drowned, having been in New England only one day. John Winthrop, who was a legitimate and loving family man, wrote to his wife, Margaret, to report the sad news, quote, My son, Henry, my son, Henry, ah, my poor child. There is, however, a coda of sorts. Henry's widow, his very interesting and somewhat scandalous cousin Elizabeth Phones, had remained behind in England. In 1632, the widow Elizabeth would marry a fellow named Robert Feek, who owned land in Massachusetts and Connecticut. They would come to New England shortly thereafter, and in 1640 would found Greenwich, Connecticut. Almost four centuries later, Any number of hedge fund managers are, no doubt, the unintended beneficiaries of Henry Winthrop's inopportune cramps. From Charlestown, settlers spread to Roxbury, Dorchester, and Watertown, and eventually Boston and Newtown, which became Cambridge. By October, however, it became clear that Charlestown was not nearly as attractive as Boston, which had ample springs of fresh water. The only problem with Boston was that it was occupied, and in principle owned by, William Blackstone, like Maverick, one of the stragglers that Bradford had written about. Blackstone, also spelled Blackston, B-L-A-X-T-O-N, if you're Googling around, had welcomed the settlers. Apparently, he wasn't quite the recluse Maverick turned out to be, and negotiated to retain title to a 50-acre farm about 10% of the total area of the peninsula in those days. All good, except that in the next five years, the population of Boston would grow to almost 4,000, 
and Blackstone's large parcel began to constrain the city. Also by then, Blackstone, who was Anglican but now Puritan, had begun to find many of his new neighbors at least a little annoying. He negotiated the sale of his farm to John Winthrop, who levied a small one-time tax on the population to pay for it. Blackstone then headed south to the territory that would eventually become Rhode Island, living there with the local tribes and later English settlers for another 40 years. The farm he sold to Winthrop is today known as the Boston Common. A lot of American history would unfold on William Blackstone's old farm over the years. The settlers all over the Bay were in a race against time that fall. They knew that winters in New England were colder than in the mother country, just as the summers were hotter. They dug holes in the sides of hills, built wigwams in the Indian fashion, even if not with Indian competence, and even managed to saw enough lumber to build a few frame houses. As early as September, Winthrop dispatched the most competent captain of the fleet, William Pierce of the Lion, spelled L-Y-O-N but pronounced like the fearsome cats, to Bristol to fetch new supplies and more settlers. On December 6, the new governor and his assistants, essentially his cabinet, met and decided to fortify the neck of the peninsula. Now, those of you who know the map of today's Boston might be wondering how that might have been done. Boston today barely looks like a peninsula and is well over a mile wide at the narrowest point between bodies of water. Then, though, the Shamit Peninsula, as the Indians of the area had named it, was well under a thousand acres and connected to the mainland by a very narrow neck. If you aren't weaving through rush hour traffic or playing lawn darts, you might pause the podcast and search for a map of Boston from the 1630s. The much larger city of today, you will almost immediately conclude, is built overwhelmingly on reclaimed land. Thomas Hutchinson describes the winter they were all bracing for, quote, The weather held tolerable until the 24th of December, but the cold then came on with violence. Such a Christmas Eve they'd never seen before. From that time until the 10th of February, their chief care was to keep themselves warm and as comfortable in other respects as their scant provisions would permit. The poorer sort were much exposed, lying in tents and miserable hovels, and many died of the scurvy and other distempers. They were so short of provisions that many were obliged to live upon clams, mussels, and other shellfish with ground nuts and acorns instead of bread. One that came to the governor's house to complain of his suffering was prevented, being informed that even there the last batch was in the oven. Some instances are mentioned of great calmness and resignation in this distress. A good man who had asked his neighbor to a dish of clams after dinner returned thanks to God, who had given them to suck of the abundance of the seas and treasure hid in the sands. Back to me. Hutchinson says that on Christmas Eve, the winter came on with violence because Winthrop had recorded in his diary that it was so cold as some had their fingers frozen and in some danger to be lost. And on Christmas Day, the rivers were frozen and they of Charlestown could not come to the sermon at Boston. 
since the ferry could not operate. It should be said for those of you who don't know New England that while there are rivers all over the world that used to freeze regularly and now do not, the Charles is not among them. It still freezes pretty often, even though its shoreline is a huge heat-emitting city. In fact, it froze about 10 days ago as I speak these words. At least 200 of the settlers died that winter, and the rest, with the big exception of Winthrop, ever the booster, were so miserable in their correspondence home that immigration slowed to a crawl in the next two years. Only 90 new settlers would come in 1631 and no more than 250 in 1632. But in fact, this would be the last time that they starved. By the next winter, the new English would be well prepared and would begin the long population boom in New England described in the last episode. How did that correspondence get to England to have its effect? On February 5th, a lion made it back, sailing the North Atlantic in the teeth of winter, and a few days later the cold would break. Master Pierce would take the lion back with mail and at least a hundred colonists who threw in the towel. They would return to England and tell everybody how miserable New England was. In one sense, this was bad news. The Massachusetts Bay Colony needed imports from England, and because as yet it had no exports, it needed new immigrants to bring over money so it could buy manufactured goods. Fortunately, the trade and shipping between Massachusetts and England would accelerate rapidly. In 1631, seven ships would go back and forth to England. And by 1633, when immigration picked up again, 16 ships would come and go. By then, the Bay Colony was beginning to generate exports, including lumber and furs, and its shipwrights were building substantial ships for trade along the coast of North America. In another sense, the attrition of that first winter hardened the settlers. Yes, there'd been a lot of death, although nothing like the attrition of newbies in the Chesapeake in those days. But the departing settlers culled the herd, as it were. Everyone who stayed, in effect, had made a conscious decision to stay. And that commitment strengthened the resilience of the remaining Puritans for years to come. The Lion also brought a few new settlers, one of whom would echo through the history of the Americans until the present day. The dissident Puritan Roger Williams, he who had worked as a stenographer for Sir Edward Coke during the great battles between Parliament and the Crown in the 1620s, stepped off the Lion. Winthrop approvingly noted the arrival of a godly minister, and for a time, he and Williams would become personal friends, even while being theological and political adversaries. The new stores in the Lion could not and did not solve every problem, but they did put an end to the scurvy ripping through the population. It would be another century before James Lind would prove, by, you know, science, that citrus juice would cure the disease, but sailors already knew it. Pierce had brought along barrels of lemon juice, and when distributed among the population, the scurvy went away. Now to John Barry, quote, For this, and for the relief from the threat of outright starvation, which the other supplies provided, Governor Winthrop and the other magistrates called for a day of prayer and thanksgiving. The celebration 
while deeply felt, was nonetheless muted. Winter and hardships continued. Those who had built homes lit great fires for warmth, but in several buildings these fires proved too great. The flames escaped the hearth and burned down the home. Wolves howled outside settlements each night and feasted on cattle. The government offered a bounty for their heads. Yet the bay was surviving. Energy poured into clearing fields, cutting roads, and constructing buildings in 1630 began to pay off. In 1631, unlike the year before, crops were planted early enough to produce a harvest. Other industries, fishing, fur trading, lumber, and shipbuilding, the straight tall trees in the New England forest made magnificent masts, were taking seed as well as offering fine prospect. America that spring seemed filled with promise. The very sky itself was full. Indeed, of all the sights of New England, the most remarkable indicators of America's seemingly infinite vastness and bounty was in the sky. Great flocks of birds, birds in the millions and millions, birds whose flights have neither beginning nor ending, flew over all the towns in our plantations, so many that they obscured the light. These were almost certainly passenger pigeons, which though now extinct, once quite literally did fill the sky. They were so plentiful that rather than shoot them, the English strung nets between trees to catch them as if they were fish. Such an infinity of life could not be found anywhere in Europe, not even in myth. Here it was real. Back to me. I really love these early colonial descriptions of the wildlife that the settlers saw before the rapid growth of the population of Europeans and Americans descended from Europeans. Massachusetts Bay would never again suffer a starving time as it had done that first winter. They got to work, bigly. Here's how Edmund Morgan described it through Winthrop's eyes, quote, As soon as spring came, the colonists began planting the champion ground in and around their settlements. Winthrop carved out a farm of 600 acres on the flat land that had pleased him up the Mystic River and set his large family of servants to cultivating it and building him a stone house. Right interjection, it's not clear from Morgan's account whether Winthrop's servants were indeed part of a large family, or family is a euphemism to describe indentured servants in his household, like the family of man or the family of Green Bay Packers fans. Back to Morgan. Winthrop made periodic visits to inspect his new domain and there tasted the hazardous life of the ordinary pioneer. He never ventured out without a gun in hand, supposing he might see a wolf, for they came daily about the house and killed swine and calves. Getting lost was another common danger, for there were only footpaths through the forest, which lay everywhere within a few hundred feet of a man's door. Winthrop once missed his path half a mile from the house, and spent a sleepless night pacing up and down beside his campfire, gathering wood and singing psalms. For such emergencies, he always carried about him match and a compass, 
and in summertime, snakeweed, which the Indians had taught him to use as a remedy for snake bite. Back to me. The reference to snakeweed is another curious mystery. If one Googles around for a bit, the word snakeweed today refers to a plant called Gutierrezia serrathrae, or something like that, which in fact the Navajo ground up or chewed and placed on snake bites. The reason why it was the Navajo who famously did this rather than, say, the Algonquins, is that Gutierrezia serrathrae is native to the western United States, thriving in sandy soils and relatively arid and high-altitude climates. Since Winthrop would not have known any of this, his reference to snakeweed suggests either that there was some other plant in New England with that name and function, or that the plant made its way all the way to the Northeast by Indian trading networks, Either is possible, I suppose, given the long distances over which North Americans conducted trade. But if in our vast family of listeners there are any botanists or friends of botanists, it would be great to get to the bottom of the snakeweed story, for which I will offer an unpodcast shout-out of thanks. Now, Winthrop truly loved his wife, Margaret, and wrote her long letters of great affection even kind of hot letters, actually, in a Puritan sort of way, in his absence, encouraging her to join him once the youngest of their children was robust enough to make the crossing. Of course, Margaret Winthrop would have heard all the bad news that came back in late 1620 with a lion's first crossing, including especially her son Henry's death. And the stories told by the hundred or so defectors who came back to England in the spring of 1631... But Margaret Winthrop was a tough woman, and so she packed up her things and organized her family, young and old, to sail to New England forever. On November 4th, 1631, the lion returned again to New England and unloaded Margaret, Mary, and Samuel Winthrop, as well as John Jr. and his wife, Martha Phones Winthrop. In Francis Bremer's words, quote, the celebration of the governor's family reunion was general. A salute was fired. The trained bands provided an escort. And a crowd gathered to welcome the new arrivals. Well-wishers brought and sent great store of provisions as fat hogs, kids, venison, poultry, goose, partridges, etc. So as the like joy and manifestation of love had never been seen in New England. Back to me. This is a great place to stop for today. Unless my muse changes his mind, for the next few episodes, we will look at the three most consequential developments in the first decade of the Puritan Massachusetts Bay. The territorial expansion of the colony, the expulsion of dissidents and nonconformists, including especially Roger Williamson and Anne Hutchinson, and the Pequot War. Ugliness will abound, which I know will appeal to many of you. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a 
great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time. <laughs>